Welcome and thank you for listening to UU Spokane, produced by the Unitarian Universalist Church of Spokane, Washington, featuring the words of Reverend Dr. Todd Eckloff and guest speakers. Sun, my sail, and moon, my rudder, as I ply the starry sea. questions into the deep drifting here with my ship's companions all we kindred pilgrim souls making our way by the lights of the heavens in our beautiful blue boat According to the ancient historian Josephus, the Romans crucified thousands, mostly peasants, in Jerusalem every year, and sometimes conducted mass executions involving as many as 500 crucifixions a day. The horror of such widespread cruelty is disturbing enough, but upon learning this little bit of history, I began imagining what it must have been like to live in such a place in time. Seeing so many crosses of the dead or dying victims they held is part of your usual landscape. Did the stench of death continuously fill the air, I wondered? Did cries of agony intermingle with the songs of birds? Could they be heard beneath the buzz of the marketplace and all the other sounds of daily life. After a while of so many years of observing so much suffering, did it ever become background noise? Most people just learned to tune out. Did they become so desensitized that they passed all those crosses undisturbed thinking it's just the way it is? They probably got what they deserved. Did all that brutality and injustice become so routine, so paradigmatic, so systemic, that most people eventually stopped even noticing it? In 1989, attorney Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, agreed to visit a 14-year-old boy facing the death penalty a 14-year-old boy facing the death penalty in Alabama for murdering his mother's abusive boyfriend. He did so after the man in one of his drunken rages punched his mother, knocking her to the floor unconscious and unresponsive in a frightening pool of her own blood. His mother had warned the boy not, never to call 911 on such an occasion. Even so, confused and frightened and shocked, the boy went to the phone in her bedroom but when he saw the man he thought had killed her passed out on the bed, he removed the man's gun from the dresser drawer and shot him with it instead. The boy was very small for his age. He weighed less than 100 pounds, Stevenson says. He'd never been in trouble before. He had no prior juvenile adjudications. He was the kind of kid that might have been tried as a juvenile, but for the fact that the man that he shot and killed, her mother's boyfriend, was a deputy sheriff. The boy was arrested and charged 
with murder. During his arraignment, the prosecutor called the deputy's death a great loss for the county and a tragedy that a good person could so heartlessly be killed by this young man. He insisted the child be tried as an adult and face the death penalty. The judge agreed, charged him with capital murder, and sent the child to an adult county jail. Stevenson eventually learned that the traumatized child had been passed around and raped so many times on just his first night in lockup that he couldn't remember by how many. In a sane society, locking children away to be used as sex slaves is among the most heinous and despicable of crimes. In a sane society, adults are responsible for the welfare and safety of the children and anyone else in their custody. In a sane society, those responsible for such abuse are held accountable. In a sane society, the tragic story of this boy ought to be as rare as it is horrifying. But in our society, the prosecutor, the judge, the prison officials, and law enforcement officers who must have known exactly what would happen to this child all kept their jobs and likely went on to put other kids in the same circumstances. In our society, prisoners of all ages routinely suffer abuse, humiliation, and are exploited while in custody. In our society, stories like these are not rare, but have become as routine is the thousands suffering on the crosses littering ancient Jerusalem. As Brian Stevenson says in Just Mercy, mass incarceration has littered the national landscape with carceral monuments of reckless and excessive punishment and ravaged communities with our hopeless willingness to condemn and discard the most vulnerable among us. Yet at least according to international law, Prison rape is classified as torture. And here in the U.S., the Supreme Court considers it a violation of the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Still, it occurs hourly in U.S. prisons and in prisons around the world. According to the Department of Justice's own statistics, every year more than 70,000 of its inmates are sexually assaulted by other inmates or by prison staff. That's about 192 people a day, eight per hour. Juveniles incarcerated in adult facilities, and as a, re as a result, I'm sorry, uh, juveniles incarcerated in adult facilities are far more likely to be assaulted by adult inmates or staff than those housed in juvenile facilities. And as a result, are 36 more times likely to commit suicide than those in juvenile detention centers. The criminal justice system treats 200,000 juveniles as adults annually, holding about 10,000 of them in adult facilities every day. Before the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional in 2005, 365 children had been legally executed in the United States. In all, there are more than 2.3 million people in U.S. prisons and more than 5 million 
on probation or parole, making ours the most incarcerated, criminalized population on earth ever. Though less than 5% of the global population, the U.S. has 25% of its prisoners. More than 640,000 people get out of jail in this country every day, and more than 11 million go inside each year, though less than 190,000 are ever convicted of a crime. Most of whom will be sentenced for less than a year for nonviolent misdemeanors. And we all know whether they are convicted or not, non-whites, especially African Americans, are overly represented in prisons. African Americans represent 34.4% of those in state and federal prisons, even though they are about 13.2% of the general population, compared with 33.6% of incarcerated whites who make up 62% of the population. About the same percentage of whites, 34% have life sentences or life without parole, compared to 48.3% of African Americans with life sentences and 56.4% who have life without parole. Combined African Americans and Hispanics represent 55% of those on death row. Our criminal justice system and penal systems also disproportionately impact the poor and the mentally ill. As Stevenson's organization, Equal Justice Initiative, or EJI, says, in the American criminal justice system, wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Indigent people are unfairly disadvantaged at every step in a system that treats the rich and guilty better than the poor and innocent. Poor people who can't afford to pay bail and must remain jailed prior to trial, preventing them from working, putting them even further in the financial hole. Statistics show that those who remain confined during pretrial are also more likely to be convicted and receive longer sentences, even after already spending months inside awaiting trial. Although everyone is supposed to receive legal counsel, whether they can afford it or not, fewer than half the states in the U.S. provide public defenders. Whether they can afford it or not, many people have to wait in jail for many more months trying to figure out how to get an attorney. While inside, they incur mounting charges for everything from housing, food, clothing, medical treatment, transportation, drug testing, paperwork, you name it. And when they eventually get out, they are thousands of dollars in debt, poorer than when they entered, and have far less chance of ever finding work. If convicted of a felony, they're not even eligible for welfare or public housing. Additionally, according to EJI, 75,000 people are held in solitary confinement every year, meaning they are alone, for 23 hours a day inside a small cell, left, let out only to shower and for a few minutes of exercise. When in solitary, they aren't allowed visitors or phone calls. Prisoners in solitary account for more than half of prison suicides and are among the most likely to suffer from depression and other unnecessary psychological and physical illnesses. 
If you're not mentally ill before going into prison, you're likely to become so if you go to solitary. Of course, the likelihood of someone being mentally ill before going to prison is high in the aftermath of the Reagan administration's decision to shut down our nation's federal psychiatric hospitals in the 1980s. Not only did this lead many among the mentally ill to become homeless, it transformed our prisons into psychiatric detention centers. Often in this country, the first point of contact that a homeless person with a psychiatric disability has with public officials is with a police officer. According to a 2007 article by Bernard E. Harcourt, a professor of law and criminology at the University of Chicago, over the past 40 years, the United States dismantled a colossal mental health complex and rebuilt bed by bed an enormous prison. A large portion of America's exploding population since the 1980s is because as a nation we've decided to stop caring for those with mental illnesses. Although there are some exceptions, the treatment of prisoners and criminal justice around the world is just about as discouraging. According to the United Nations, there are 10 million people imprisoned around the globe, most in conditions well below internationally agreed upon standards. It's also reported that more than half the countries on earth have prison systems that exceed 100% of their capacity. As in the U.S., global incarceration also impacts the poor and most vulnerable among us, and in its words, runs the risk of degenerating into dangerous places for both prisoners and prison staff and can even turn into crime schools and fertile breeding grounds for radicalization. Some of the reasons for what the UN calls the global prison crisis include some of the same problems in the US, excessive pretrial detention, lack of legal counsel and assistance, punitive practices and policies, few alternatives to prison to begin with, no reintegration strategies and inadequately funding prisons, among other issues. If there is a silver lining to any of this, it is that criminal justice, both in the U.S. and globally, has become so unjust and so inhumane that many have started taking notice of this terrible reality and are finally working to do something about it. Globally, the United Nations prison reform strategy includes reducing the scope of imprisonment, improving prison conditions, and supporting reintegration for offenders upon release. There are also organizations, many, and, and individuals like Brian Stevenson, Stevenson working to end some of these injustices in the U.S. His organization, Equal Justice Initiative, EJI, is committed to bringing an end to mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the U.S., particularly as it impacts non-whites and others among the nation's most vulnerable and discriminated against citizens. The success of civil rights advocate Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, subtitled Mass Incarceration in an Age of Color Blindness, has made many aware 
that the drug war and mass incarceration have been veiled excuses to continue age-old systems of racism and oppression, which makes many in our prison not criminals, but political prisoners. The number of police shootings and unarmed black men captured, black men in particular, I should say, captured on video has sparked the Black Lives Movement. Communities around the nation, including our own, are switching to smart justice programs designed to keep people out of prison and to housing first programs to compassionately deal with homelessness. Just this past week, even Donald Trump, erratic as he can be, put forward a plan to begin releasing more prisoners and initiating reintegration programs to help keep them out. So our awareness about this dire crisis and injustice and our political bipartisan will to finally do something about it has begun to align. But if criminal justice reform is going to be effective and long-lasting, if it is truly going to be transformed and transformative, we must consider something more insidious first the almost universal attitude that has led us down this path to begin with. I'm talking about the underlying authoritarian mindset that has long fashioned our punitive response to crime. In his inquiry into the psychology of ethics, Eric Fromm contrasts two kinds of ethics, humanistic and authoritarian. In the latter, he says, the authority ordains obedience to be the main virtue and disobedience to be the main sin. The sole criterion of ethical value in humanist, humanistic ethics, on the other hand, he says, is human welfare. Looking at all we've considered about our current criminal justice and penal systems, it's easy to see which kind of ethics, which value system they reflect. Developmental psychology has long associated the authoritarian mindset with the punitive morality of small children. Jean Piaget, the pioneering figure in childhood development, called this kind of morality retributive justice, explaining that in the domain of retributive justice, every punishment is accepted as perfectly legitimate, as necessary, and even is constituting the essence of morality. In other words, when we're at the earliest stages of our psychological development, we don't question the authorities and figure that those being punished must deserve whatever they get. Another developmentalist, James Fowler, says, stage one looks to the consequences of an act and the probable degree of punishment it would entail. Again, at this stage, something is right or wrong based only on whether one will be punished for it or not. And it's up to the external authorities to make up the rules that we must all follow without question. Neither our own agency or our ability to think for ourselves are foster, fostered or encouraged at this authoritarian stage. As Lawrence Kohlberg, best known for his stages of moral development, put it, the young child is not oriented to the bad as being selfish or being deceitful, etc., but is rather oriented to the bad as being punished. 
Normally, if our caregivers genuinely love us by wanting us to blossom as authentic individuals, I'll repeat that because that's an important one to get. If we are genuinely loved, people want us to blossom as individuals. If that happens, we begin to outgrow the punitive authoritarian morality between ages five and seven. Coming to understand morality is relational, that we must take into account how our behaviors and our choices impact the welfare of others. Toward the final stages of psychological maturation, morality becomes based on our fidelity to certain universal values like equality, fairness, compassion, and justice. If we don't advance psychologically toward this kind of principle-based morality, then we remain stuck or fixated at an earlier stage of our development. This isn't to say that we don't all revert to earlier patterns of thinking from time to time, especially if we f feel threatened. Only that if and as we mature, if and as we mature, we tend to usually think and behave in ways that are mature. I don't need to go any deeper into developmental psychology for you to grasp the problem with our punitive criminal justice system. It is almost entirely grounded in, an, in a punitive authoritarian mindset. It reflects a fixated society, a society stuck at the most primitive stages of moral awareness. As civil rights attorney and criminal justice reformer Dr. Fania Davis says, today the dominant idea of justice is based upon a sort of fundamentalist notion that crime is sin. And the only way it can be atoned for is through suffering. And so this idea of justice focuses on just deserts, pain, suffering, isolation, deprivation, even death is the only thing that can right the wrong, the only way to pay back its debt to society, the only way to balance the scales and to settle accounts. If as a society and world, we truly hope to change our response to criminal justice, we must grow beyond this punitive mindset toward one emphasizing human fulfillment, growth, and well-being as its sole criterion. We must stop emphasizing what the individual has done wrong and what punishment one deserves and begin asking what went wrong and what can we do as a compassionate society to help fix the problem. Several years ago, as I mentioned last Sunday, I had the privilege of meeting with a delegation of community and state leaders from Afghanistan. What I didn't tell you is we were meeting to share ideas about how our countries deal with issues of crime and justice. I learned that in their country they have two systems of justice. The state system, what they call the state system, and the more traditional or tribal system. The state system, they complained, is expensive, slow, and corrupt. Remind you of anything? 
The traditional system, on the other hand, requires community leaders to come together with those involved in a crime to figure out what the perpetrator should do to make reparations to the offended party. So the two parties don't end up in a feud that ends up impacting the entire community. The system also enables both sides to keep their dignity and remain valuable members of the community. In Afghanistan, this works so well that the state system even accepts the traditional system so long as all parties agree to its terms. Nowadays, we call this traditional model restorative justice. We like to invent things, claim things, and we invented them and thought of them, right? <laughs> because restorative justice also seeks to keep people out of prison and as productive members of the community, while at the same time enabling them to make reparations to those that they have harmed or wronged. But there is nothing new about restorative justice. It is our ancient and our most human way, our most natural way of dealing with each other. Again, as Fania Davis explains, for most of human history, reconciliation and restitution to victims and their kin took precedence over vengeance. This is because restoring social peace and avoiding blood feuds were paramount concerns. The punitive system we've become accustomed to emerged only in the 13th century with the dawning of the nation state and the industrial age. As hunters, hunter-gatherers and nomads, our ancestors did, not, ancestors did not carry prisons around with them. They had to work things out. They had to try to heal their disputes rather than harm those they disputed with. This is why, as Davis points out, in most indigenous language, there is no word for prison. By applying human fulfillment, growth, and welfare as the measure of all things, as the measure of how we respond to crime and criminals, let us work to eradicate the word prison from our language once again. True, there may always be a few among us who need to be removed from society, but even then they can be housed in places where they are cared for and treated with kindness and with respect, where they are kept safe. Instead of asking what should the punishment be, let us begin asking what went wrong and how can we help. Instead of accepting this is just the way it is, going about our daily lives, lives as if millions of people locked away, abused in cramped, cruel cages, their livelihoods and lives ruined, is just a part of the landscape. Let us acknowledge this field of crosses all around our community on the circumference of our lives. Own the horror and the injustice they evoke and vow to do things differently. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Connect with our community on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at UUSpokane, or learn more at UUSpokane.org.
I give thanks to the waves upholding me. Hail the great winds urging me on. Greet the infinite sea before me. Sing the sky my sailor song. I was born upon the fathoms. Never harbor or port have I known. The wide universe is the ocean I travel. And the earth is my blue boat home. The wide universe is the ocean I travel.